may be a little confused by this book. I always have been, and I'm not saying I'm not anymore. I may be a little less confused now. But Solomon, the probable author of Ecclesiastes, is a man I would describe as caught between two worlds. Uh, John Stott once wrote a book about preaching between two worlds, and that's where, in some sense, where I stand right now. But Solomon was between, caught between the world that he could see and hear and touch and the word, world that he couldn't see and hear and touch. And to the extent that he was able to keep that in mind and intentionally move himself toward the unseen world, that's the extent to which he was able to make some sense out of what we see and hear. You recall that Pastor Eric told us each chapter in this book relates back to the overall theme of the book, of the book and the overall theme being vanity, striving after wind, and vexation. I'll probably remember him running back and forth on the stage for quite a while, trying to catch the wind. There was a good visual for us. If you weren't here last week, we'll have to... I'm not going to reenact it. You're going to have to use your imagination. <clears throat> but then um, he said, trying to find fulfillment in anything other than Jesus will lead to vanity and is about as fruitful as trying to catch the wind. He identified six major themes. Number one, the tragic reality of the fall and how it affects every part of humanity. Number two, the vanity of life and how it sometimes just doesn't make sense. Third, the unavoidable nature of sin and death. Fourth, the joys and frustrations of work in a fallen world. Fifth, the grateful enjoyment of God's good gifts and his pleasures. And then sixth and finally, a relationship with God is the only thing that makes sense and the only set of lenses that makes sense of the chaos in this world. Now, if you're a believer here today, none of those things strike you, strike you as unusual or out of the ordinary, but it does account for, those themes account for the uh, kind of the frustration that we walk through life with. You will experience that, if not right here and now, when you walk out of this place, get behind the wheel, get out on the street, and somebody cuts you off. It's just the way it is. We were also told that Solomon, the most probable human author of the book, has a very fragmented view of God at times. He's all, all over the map in this book, and Eric described the book as shockingly honest, quote-unquote. Well, I'd say we can see all of this, at least the first five of these themes, in this second chapter of the book. We may have to wait for the twelfth and final chapter for the sixth of the themes that the relationship with God is the only thing that makes sense and the only set of lenses that makes sense of the chaos in this world. We may have to wait for that to fully emerge when we get to the twelfth and final chapter, but it will be worth waiting for. So if you have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes 2, and I suspect it's going to be or it may not be, uh, projected for us. Oh, there it is. Look at that. I was going to come in with like a little clicker like Andy Smith uses and, and just point 
and have nothing happen. But you can use your imagination for that. I am not a techie person. Ecclesiastes 2, before I read, let me pray. Lord, we are all aware and at times painfully aware of the frustration of living in a fallen world. We are aware of how difficult it is to keep ourselves in a place where we can see you and we can trust your work in our lives. And we see Solomon, man of great wisdom, who lost his grip on that time after time. As we study his life and his writings, would you help us to resist that same uh, temptation and help us to be able to rest in you. But we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 2, we're going to read the first eight verses. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had come before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines the delight of the children of man. A couple of things might help us to understand where Solomon is coming from in this chapter. We are witnesses here to what is sometimes called an inner dialogue. Solomon is wrestling within himself over some very large and very important issues. You can almost hear him going through the process in this way. On the one hand, but then on the other hand, it's a kind of a point-counterpoint kind of thing. If not this, maybe this. It shows up in the very first verse where he says, let me try pleasure, but no. That, this is worthless. It's vanity. The rest of the first paragraph that we just read may simply be his detailing for us what that consisted of. Laughter, wine, building project, projects, male and female slaves, herds and flocks, and silver and gold. Now, if you take the time to read about Solomon's reign in 1 Kings, it's all there. He built the temple. He built his own palace, which incidentally took almost twice as long as the temple to build. Temple, seven years, the palace, 13 years. He became notorious for his indulgence in women. He had 
the 300 wives and the 700 concubines, or was it the other way around? Anyway, he had a lot of women. And he was the richest man in all the world, according to 1 Kings. Chapter 10 of that book describes the huge amount of gold that came to Solomon in a single year. And not just in one year, but every year. 666 talents of gold. Anybody know, off the top of your head, how much a talent is? Well, it's right there in your footnotes. It's 75 pounds. Think about it. How much is an ounce of gold? I don't know. What's, what's it up to? $1,500? That's a sixteenth of a pound, and Solomon acquired 666 pounds of gold every year. In fact, there was so much gold that the Bible tells us that silver wasn't even considered valuable in Solomon's day. Think about that. Solomon had all the wealth any one man could have ever desired. But that wasn't enough to satisfy him. Which leads to the second thing that may help us to understand the chapter. And I would say the repetition of the language helps us understand. Language like under the sun, which we saw twice in the first chapter, verses 2 and 14. And the related phrase, under heaven, which is here in verse 3 and was also in chapter 1, verse 13. So, Solomon's frame of reference is finite, earthly, between two worlds. He's got his foot firmly planted in this world. He is, in this chapter at least, a de facto materialist. What do I mean by that? I mean that as far as Solomon was concerned and his perspective here in this chapter, all that really exists, all that you can count on is whatever you can touch, see, smell, taste, material. That's what he was looking for and that's how he's trying to to get satisfied, get fulfilled. He's, He's learning that materialism never satisfies, but I'm sure his gardens and pools and vineyards and parks were stunning. It's easy to get infatuated with the wonders of the natural world, whether enhanced by human effort or not. Think of, for example, Longwood Gardens, if you've been there, or the beauty of the national parks, or the grandeur and awe of the ocean. But it's dangerous to dwell too long on that perspective or in that perspective. Here here we have some help from Paul Tripp from his devotional New Morning Mercies. That's what Tripp says about the glories of the physical world. These glories were created and placed in our lives for, for a purpose. All of the glories of the physical created world serve this one purpose to remind remind us of and point us to the glory of God. We were never meant to live for earthbound, earthbound glory. We were never meant to seek peace and satisfaction of heart here. We were never meant to offer the desires and allegiance of our heart 
to what God made. The physical world is wonderfully glorious, but it was never meant to be our stopping point any more than the sign that points to something is meant to be the end of the journey. The sign is not the thing. The sign points you to the thing. The same can be said of the physical creation. It is not the thing that you were made to live for. It was made to point you to the thing you were made to live for, and that thing is God and God alone. Imagine traveling Route 80 and coming to a sign, Pittsburgh, 300 miles, and deciding that you had arrived at Pittsburgh. That's what he's saying here. The sign is not the thing. The sign is pointing you to the thing. And all the wonders we see around us, even in a fallen world, pretty special, aren't they? But they should be pointing us to the one who created and gave us stewardship over this world. So one other thing that I, item that I suspect would help us a little bit to understand Solomon's perspective here, and that's, there is in the Bible and elsewhere such a thing as observational language. The most common example of observational language is when someone says, the sun rises. Am I supposed to change directions here? When somebody says the sun rises, you don't say, no, no, really, technically that's not true. The sun doesn't rise, the earth rotates, and the sun comes into view. But no, we accept observational language as a legitimate form of expression. And so when Solomon looks around and sees all these things, and he sees the futility of his own work, which we'll see momentarily, And when he seems to be saying, God, it doesn't feel like God's being fair with me here. That's observational language. There are times, are there not, when we've all struggled struggled with that. Why is it that the bad guys seem to to get, get away with it and here we are stuck with paying our taxes and doing all the things that hardworking, honest people have to do? Not the end of the story. Let's move ahead to the second section of this chapter. We're going to read from... uh, I didn't actually read far enough in the first section. So let's pick it up at verse 8. 9. (laughs) 9. It's getting harder and harder. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem and... Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and, this, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here Solomon is, is he's reflecting the same perspective that we heard from Pastor Eric last week when he said he was addicted to more. Solomon is addicted to more. The things that he's going after aren't necessarily bad things, but they're God's substitutes, and he, he can't get enough. He just can't get enough. Pick it up at verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, For what can the man do 
who comes after the king, only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Okay, he's kind of getting a foot, a foot in the world with a, a more of an eternal perspective here. But then the wise person, verse 14, has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How, do, how the wise dies, just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all, that my, to- all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my my heart up to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity." For Solomon, the struggle continues. Having found that wealth and sensual pleasures don't satisfy, he turns to consider the philosophical question of wisdom and madness and folly. And here's another dilemma. Even though he agrees, maybe with himself, that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, the problem is that in the end, the same fate awaits both the wise man and the fool. Both will die and be forgotten. Notice he he studiously avoids avoids mentioning the word death. He did say dies one time, but he uses kind of euphemistic language in referring to his own certain death. Maybe believing that by refusing to use the word, it won't be real to him. The idea of being forgotten after death torments Solomon. He says in verse 17... So I hated life. Adding to his anguish over what happens after he dies is the thought that whoever he leaves it all to may very well be a fool. This leads to even greater despair, we see in verse 20. Um, yet he, uh, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors and what's going to happen to all of this. Here's a great irony. Solomon has been so concerned with building a monument to himself, accumulating goods to himself, leaving a lasting impression, leaving a lasting impression that he's forgotten 
the part of his legacy that really matters, the next generation. In the entire chapter, we are given no reason to believe that this man, the wisest who ever lived perhaps, could see the importance of investing in the man who will take, would take his place. All he says is, maybe he'll be a fool, and maybe he'll just squander everything I've collect, collected here. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you know, that, you know how that turned out. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, came to the throne after Solomon's death, and he was a fool. He was a fool. He had a serious issue that he had to confront early in his reign. He, he turned away from the counsel and the wisdom of the elders who had counseled his father, went to his contemporaries, those, those he had grown up with, they gave him different advice. He followed their advice. The result was the ten-twelfths of the kingdom was torn from him. The kingdom was divided for the rest of the kingdom period. And ultimately, there was apostasy. And the, the nations, Judah and Israel, went into captivity. Because Rehoboam, you could, you could say this, because Rehoboam was a fool. The very thing that Solomon said he feared, and yet Solomon didn't take any action to prevent that from happening. He didn't invest, as far as we know, in his son. The chapter ends on a note of what I would call resignation. You can see it in these last three verses. Pick it up in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So Solomon's saying, enough of the projects and indulgence in pleasure and acquisition of riches and all the rest. Maybe the simple pleasures, quote-unquote, simple pleasures of enjoying eating and drinking and fulfilling work will do the trick. He even turns his thoughts to God to some extent in these verses. But note that, note that this God isn't the one who revealed himself to Moses not the transcendent, inscrutable, infinite creator of the universe. This God here in Ecclesiastes 2 sounds more like a cosmic referee, rewarding those who please him, punishing those who don't. There's no grace here. Indeed, as the chapter closes, we read yet again, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The simple fact is that Solomon missed the wonderful truth that was captured by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, to which we can only say, Amen. And I would remind you of something else Pastor Eric said last week. Even very good things do not satisfy until they lead you, lead me, to the heart of the giver of all good things. But more on that in the weeks to come.
So here's my challenge to you. Something I learned from the godly men I studied under at the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Where do you locate yourself in this chapter? Are you the Solomon who's chasing after pleasure, hoping to find fulfillment in experiences or acquisition or sex or building monuments to yourself? If so, have you forgotten the legacy you will leave behind in the lives of those you have invested in, children or friends or brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are you the Solomon who can't seem to maintain a grip on the bigger picture? Do you have trouble remembering that you are owned by God and held by God and loved by God and all this is true regardless of your circumstances? Do you spend more time stressing over the events of the day, who cut you off in traffic or the latest political outrage or the weather even? than in reveling in the truth that if you love God, he has promised to be in all of it for your good. All of it. Is the fleeting moment you are here in this life, and it is a fleeting moment, more important to you than the eternal eternity you will spend in either heaven or hell? Is your reputation too important Do you spend too much time thinking about what other people are thinking of you instead of rejoicing that God sees you in Christ and loves you with an everlasting love? What a temptation that is to be thinking about what people are thinking of you when you're standing here in front of people wondering, how's it going? Are they thinking good things about me? That's not the question. It's the wrong question and it's bound to lead to the wrong answer. What are your idols? They may show up in unexpected ways or at unexpected times. Here's a recent idol God graciously showed me just within the last few months. And this is what I will close with. A serious family situation came to our attention a couple of months ago, two and a half months ago. And it was something that we had never had to confront before. And I found myself stressing, losing sleep. I had serious anxiety over it. And as I worked through that and prayed through it, God revealed something to me that I probably should have known because it's so obvious, but I didn't. And what he revealed to me was that I am preoccupied with, I have made an idol of what people think of me. I want people to think that I have things under control, that everything's cool, I don't need help. And that situation that popped up forced me to get on my knees and to say, no, that's, that's an illusion. I don't have that kind of control. I don't want people to think that of me. I want people to know that I'm a needy, needy sinner. In the goodness and grace of God, that was one of the recent uh, ways that he was in an experience, very difficult experience for my good. So as we go through this book, we're going to see Solomon dealing with issue after issue and struggling to maintain his grip on the fact that it's not this life that matters, but it's the next. Let me pray for us. Father, 
we know about ourselves that as soon as we walk out of here, the attack will come, the struggle will continue, will resume. And we will need to be reminded time after time that none of this really matters in the final analysis. And none of what happens to us in terms of temptation, in terms of frustration, in terms of, of uh, the, the events of life that can lead us to despair, none of that matters because you're in all of that for our good. And you've promised to never leave nor forsake us. So Lord, when we think about Solomon, help us to remember that human wisdom isn't what carried him through. But when he finally came to that realization that only being led to the heart of the giver will get us through. We look forward to how you will continue to teach us in these next weeks. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Eric, I'm not going to be one of the pastors here. And yes, it came in a little bit late.